0: Hey, welcome to episode number 199 of the podcast, More Than Bread. Now, I got to tell you, every time I hear, or almost every time, I hear the theme words of this podcast, we cannot live on bread alone. I'm always tempted to write or say, of course not. We must have coffee. <laughs> now, I consider myself a coffee connoisseur, but I'll be honest, most days I'll take it any way I can get it. But, but years ago, I, I ran across a coffee I'd never heard of. It's called Kopi Luwak. A kopi luwak is less a type of bean and more a type of production. It, it's literally the most expensive coffee in the world. Last time I checked, there were less than a few thousand pounds a year produced, and, and it cost around $300 a pound, $20 an ounce. You get a discount for a pound. It originated in Indonesia from the Sumatra and Java Islands. This, this coffee bean has a really interesting story, an exotic story, In in some places, like I said, it costs up to $300 a pound. And In fact, I think it's the only coffee on the net that buyers will sell by the ounce. Now, why is it so expensive? Because it's so rare, might be one of the answers. And why is it so rare, you might ask? Well, it's because it goes through a very unique processing system. Kopi is Indonesian for coffee, we get that. Luwak is Indonesian for the name of how we get this coffee. And luwak is a cat, <laughs> it's a civic cat a nocturnal creature that comes out only at night. This cat is like the Juan Valdez of the animal animal kingdom. According to coffee lore and legend, this cat only picks the most co- perfect coffee cherries to eat. It, it comes out at night and wanders all over the island of Sumatra looking for choice coffee cherries. No Kona for this cat. It'd rather starve than dine on Folger's beans. And while in the little guy's stomach, the cherry is digested, but the bean is not right and and it undergoes some chemical bodily chemical treatments and fermentations and then finishes its journey through the digestive tract exiting the processing system the beans still intact are collected how would you like to have that job they're washed and roasted and then mailed to people who can afford it <laughs> the resulting coffee is said to be like no other rich heavy flavor with hints of caramel or chocolate said one reviewer Earthy, musty smell, exotic. The body is almost syrupy and very smooth, said another. Chris Rubin writes, it lingers on the tongue with a long, clean aftertaste. It's definitely one of the most interesting and unusual cups I've ever had. (laughs) I don't know how it tastes. And I'd like to know who tasted the very first cup. I mean, that guy had some courage. The most expensive exotic coffee in the world, every one of those beans has passed through a civet cat. Who would ever think that from the dung of a cat would come $300 a pound coffee? Who who would ever think that from something bad could come something good? Who would ever think that from the midst of something the world despises, like a garbage dump, could come something the world would treasure, like Jesus, right? Right? God sent Jesus from heaven to be born in a garbage dump of a place, a barn in Bethlehem, to grow up in the armpit of the nation, Nazareth. Can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? That's what they used to say. He was born in a barn, grew up in a rural ghetto, and where did he die? A place called Golgotha, the garbage dump for Jerusalem. Now, This isn't the main text for this episode, but it sets the scene. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 25 through 28, Paul writes these words. He says, This foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, listen to these words. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Now, I don't know. Some of you might think that you're garbage dump people. That you're living a trash can life, that every morning you wake up feeling like you've just exited that digestive tract of the world, and you're going to walk in it all day long. But you know, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is all about the way in which the weakest, most despised, most difficult people in the world, or most difficult circumstances in, in your life can become something amazing through the power of God. You you can become one of the most beautiful, most radiant, best people in the world. Your circumstances can be turned upside down. See, the gospel is all about how God finds gold in the garbage. It's all about how God does good things in bad times. Or as Leonard Sweet puts it, whatever is buried trash in your life, God can turn into buried treasure. Whatever you think are the trash cans of your existence, God can turn them into treasure chests. The Hebrew word for hell was sheol. Heaven was shiloh. God can turn any sheol into a shiloh. If you will only let the Spirit of God take that pain, that suffering, that ugliness, that contemptible circumstances, and let the Spirit turn it. You know, some of you right now, you're going through garbage dump times. And in this episode, as we look at the next part of Paul's letter to his friends in Philippi, I just, I want to relate to you three good things about bad times that will help you find joy. Here's the first good thing. Our trash heaps might be God's treasure chests. Now, remember where Paul's at now. Here's the setting. Imagine this. Is you for a minute. Seriously consider this has happened to you. You've lost your job. You're isolated from your friends. You're living in a strange country where you, you don't know people. Jealous enemies have trashed your reputation. You've been arrested on trumped up charges. You, you've been physically beaten, put in jail. You don't know if you'll ever get out of jail. You might be put to death, maybe even tomorrow. For four years, Paul has been in miserable circumstances. Not at all what he expected when he signed on to God's team. He's, he spent two years in prison in Caesarea for trumped-up charge. Then he's put on a ship to go to Rome to appear before Nero, who's not known for his charming disposition to Christians. And on the way there, he's shipwrecked, stranded on an island, bitten by a poisonous snake, waits the winter there, continues on to Rome, spends another two years in prison awaiting trial to be executed. And, and during this two-year period in Rome, he's chained to a guard for 24 hours a day, has absolutely no privacy. Every four hours or so, he gets a new guard. And, and, and this isn't the first time these kinds of things have happened. And if, if you were Paul and you believed that God's blessing, may, that you would go through life without any problems, and you, you would have just felt like you were God's whipping boy. I'm afraid that if I were going through this, I might have experienced just a a little bit of discouragement, some anger maybe even, some some confusion definitely, and a little bit of the why me whine. I don't know that I would have experienced joy, but that wasn't Paul's attitude, right? In fact, as he sat down to write this letter, the one word he could not get out of his mind was the word joy. In spite of all the garbage, Paul says in Philippians 1.18, he says, I will continue to rejoice. I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Amazing. And and how could this happen? Why would this happen? Well, it happened because he had a different perspective. See, sometimes the only difference between those who think they're living treasure chest lives and those who think they're living trash can lives is really just perspective. I mean, listen to Paul's perspective. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. See, Paul says, I can see the best even in the worst. I can see God at work in the problems, even when they don't go my way. People are seeing Jesus and my attitude towards them. Believers are being encouraged. The gospel is going forth because of of my chains. I'm in a trash heap, but God is pulling out some treasure. It's true, Paul said, he goes on to say, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. See, when you read Paul's story, you find out that he had a dream. He had a compelling vision. He wanted to bring Jesus to the whole world. And for Paul, that culture, that day, the whole world was at Rome. He wanted to witness to Caesar. So God brought him to Rome. God brought him to Caesar. This is like wanting to witness to Putin. (laughs) God brought him and... And probably not the way Paul envisioned. No mass crusade in the Colosseum. No miraculous signs and wonders in Nero's court. Instead, God put him in prison where he would write the New Testament. He's chained to the palace guard, the praetorium, the crack elite troops of the Roman Empire, personally chosen by Caesar to be his bodyguards. They're the highest paid people of the empire. When they retired after 12 years, they were made leaders in Rome. There's not a more strategic group that Paul could witness to if he's going to reach the Roman Empire. So God puts Paul in Rome, Nero pays the bill and chains the future leader of Rome to him for every four hours. In, in two years of four hour shifts, Paul potentially witnessed over 4,000 guards. I'm sure some of them did it twice, but you get the idea. These guards had an inside route to the emperor, and it's likely that this had something to do with some of Nero's family becoming followers of Jesus. History tells us that Nero had his wife, mother, and children killed because they became believers. See, Paul was able to see that even though it wasn't the way he planned it, God was in the process of fulfilling some of his greatest dreams, answering some of his most passionate prayers. So if you want to have joy in your life, no matter what your circumstances are, you need to be able to see your trash heaps as God's treasure chests. I need to look for God's purposes in all my suffering, all my problems. What are your problems right now? What difficult circumstances are you going through now? Ask God to show you his purposes in your hard time. A second good thing about bad times is that hard times, bad times catalyze great growth. Now, we, we know this, don't we? We just don't want to admit it because we're afraid that if we admit it, God will think we'd like it and then he'll just give us more hard times. Paul's understanding of God's message is not, I will bring you growth in spite of your problems. It's, I will bring you growth through your problems, through your suffering. In fact, sometimes only through your problems. In Romans 5, it says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 17, Paul writes, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed or broken. We're perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We get kicked down, knocked down, but we get, we get up again and we keep going. We never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are quite small and they won't last very long. And yet they produce for us, Paul says. I love this. They produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. Through trials, God will turn our trash heap lives into a treasure chest of glory. Hard times can bring great growth. It's an awesomely powerful thing when someone looks at the trash of my life and sees a treasure. I remember going to Mount Rushmore during high school. I lived in South Dakota, and the sight of those four massive faces set in stone was awe-inspiring. But you know what impressed me even more? It took Gutzon Borglum 14 years to complete the, scripture, the sculpture. Of those 14 years, only six and a half were spent actually working on the sculpture. The other seven and a half were spent overcoming opposition, financial problems, illness, death, and weather. He, but he never quit. He had a vision of what was inside that rocky cliff just waiting to come out, come out. Listen, God looks at the jagged cliffs of your life at the garbage dump of my life. He looks at the blank canvas and he sees treasure that nobody else can see. I mean, Saul of Tarshish was a persecutor of the church. In his own words, the chief of all sinners. And God looked inside his life and and saw a man who would take the good news of forgiveness, grace, and love to a whole world. And now in prison, he writes, yes. And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. Through their prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was anticipating salvation. Now, what kind of salvation was he expecting? He'd already been forgiven of his sins. He already had a relationship with God. He already saw heaven as his final destination. It wasn't that kind of salvation. Some think he was anticipating salvation from prison, freedom. But but we see later that that he thought it was more probable that he would lose his life than than leave prison. See, I think Paul is anticipating being saved from having a character that would disappoint Christ. He's been through God's processing system enough to know that hard times bring great growth. He knows that it's it's not a done deal. That's why he wants prayer and he needs God, but he's anticipating spiritual growth that would lead to actions that please Jesus. I eagerly expect and hope, he writes, Verses 18 and 20, that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, in hard times, in the midst of the crucible, I will rely on prayer and trust the Spirit of God to transform me. Are you going through hard times? And Be encouraged. God is chiseling away because he sees a treasure in you. If you want to get through it with joy, start praying. (laughs) Last good thing, life and death can become a win-win situation. Life and death can become a win-win situation. In any bad circumstances, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? Well, at least one of our answers would surely be that the worst thing that could happen to us is that I might die or someone I love might die. Professional golfer Paul Azinger was diagnosed with cancer at age 33. He had just won a PGA championship and had 10 tournament victories to his credit. He wrote, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. And then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf, he said, became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. And then he remembered something that Larry Moody, who teaches a Bible study on the tour, had said to him. He said, Zinger, we're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying trying to get to the land of the living. A. Zinger recovered from chemotherapy and returned to the PGA Tour. He'd done pretty well, but but that bout with cancer changed his life. He wrote, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour, and I've won a lot of tournaments, but that happiness is always temporary. The only way you will ever have true contentment, true joy, is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me, and I don't have problems, but I love this. He says, but I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. And he doesn't mean six-foot deep. He means a six-foot golf hole, the one hole, the one that you aim towards it and you just can't miss. Have you found the answer to the six-foot hole? And it's hard to find joy until you find that answer. You see, Paul had found that answer. He said in verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, he continued, he said, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. Can you say that? I'm torn between living and dying and and say it without without being in depression or discouragement I'm torn between the two I desire to depart and be with Christ he continues which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body convinced of this I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your joy your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me <laughs> In verses 22 through 26, Paul is basically saying, I I, I don't know which one, if I could choose, I don't know if I would choose dying or living, because dying means I get to go to be with Jesus. But living means I get to continue to help you find joy. So I guess I'm going to stay. Let me clarify something. For Paul, the answer to death was not that God had given him life insurance or as some might say, fire insurance. For Paul, the answer to the six-foot hole was that he had found a mission. He had found a person worth living for and worth dying for. To live for Jesus was to please Jesus. And to die was even better because it meant not only pleasing Jesus, but being with Jesus. So he said, I'm going to find a mission worth living and dying for. We'll hit that one a bit more in the next episode. God, thank you for this example of Paul. God, would you use the example of Paul in our lives to to help us know what it looks like to to be in a place where, where we're looking forward to dying because we get to be with you, not because we're discouraged, not because of the hard times we're going through, not because we just want it to stop, but simply because we are so looking forward to being with you, Jesus. And yet, would you also give us that sense of mission? Would you give us a sense that while we are here, while you give us breath to breathe and life to live and love to to love others with it, that while we're here, we're on a mission. We're on a mission to help other people find joy, to help other people find Christ. God, would you help us on that mission, each and every person listening, would you help us even today in this moment, in the next 24 hours, would you help us to live out that mission, to help somebody else find Jesus and find joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.